If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, they thought, why stop there? Why not create other exciting and unexpected combinations, like rainbows and ropes, or fruity and gummy, or chewy and more chewy? That's why they created fun treats like Sweet Tarts Twisted Rainbow Ropes, Gummies Fruity Splits, and Chewy Fusions. When you dare to combine, it's sure to blow your mind. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. Visit SweetTartsCandy.com to shop now. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Even if you haven't heard of William Morris, you'd probably recognise some of his designs. Lively, repeating floral patterns adorned with fruit, birds and bugs. Many of which are still a staple of wallpaper and upholstery fabrics today. Morris is widely hailed as the hero of the 19th century arts and crafts movement, but perhaps less well-known is his wife, Jane. And according to Suzanne Fagens Cooper, who's the author of a new joint biography of the couple, Jane also had a significant influence on Victorian art. Ellen Evans spoke to Suzanne about the couple's creative and personal partnership. Thank you so much, Suzanne, for joining us on the History Extra podcast. It's a real pleasure to be talking with you today. Thank you. It's great to be here. And your latest book is How We Might Live, At Home with Jane and William Morris. And this joint biography reconsiders the life and work of Jane Morris and the art and homes that she made together with her husband, William. And and perhaps we'll start as you do with William, but I hope we'll soon get into what's known of her story. Uh, And for listeners who might not know who William Morris is, can you situate us a bit on his work and influence in Victorian Britain? So William Morris was born as a wealthy uh, boy in North London. Uh, his, he inherited a lot of money from his father, um, and that meant that he was able to go to Oxford and um, 
and then established himself initially as a poet uh, and then as a painter. And then finally, he found his vocation as a designer of um, decorative arts. So for the home, things for the home. And he gathered lots of friends around him, uh, people like Ed- Edward Byrne-Jones, uh, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, um, who were also really accomplished artists and designers. And with them, he established um, uh, a company to uh, to decorate your new church, to decorate your new house. Um, he exhibited at some of the big exhibitions in London. And really, he was the jumping off point, the the founding father, I guess, of the arts and crafts movement. This idea that uh, going back to nature, uh, doing things with your hands rather than through sort of industrialised production, these were the things that mattered. Um, And then out of that, he becomes very involved um, in the early stages of the socialist movement. So he spans so many different um, activities in the 19th century. He is this sort of colossus, really. He's got his feet in so in, in different camps. And I really love that about him. Absolutely. That that sense of him as a polymath comes across so much when you picture him in, you know, up to his elbows in vats of dye, getting his hands involved in these sort of crafts and, and art that he's learning about. Um, so can he tell us a little bit more about this circle of artists he finds himself in and and perhaps his years in Oxford are really formative aren't they? That's right so he goes up to Oxford um, at the end of the um, of that sort of burgeoning of the Oxford movement of that sort of religious fervour um, in the 1850s and he finds himself just at the tail end of that and slightly at a loss because he did want to go into the church he did want to become a vicar and I think that explains a lot of his his passion and his sort of faith in change, you know, he actually diverts that that enthusiasm into changing people's lives, their livelihoods. But at the heart of it, he has this sort of um, sense that by making beautiful things, by establishing beautiful places to live, by working in nature, he um, he can transform people's lives for the better and that he starts in Oxford just walking around the city loving the gothic uh, spaces in the city and also seeing them torn down his own college um, is being constantly um, sort of restored while he's there so the old buildings that he he loved are being um, sort of torn down and replaced by faux gothic the gothic revival Um, and his friends that he makes there some of them stick with him for the rest of his life. So Edward Byrne-Jones, for example, who comes from Birmingham, um, he is a, a already, you know, loves drawing, loves uh, reading, illustration. And so on the back of their friendship, they sort of start to gather ideas about uh, about um, the medieval world, particularly medieval romances, things like the Arthurian romances, reading Chaucer together. These things um, sort of are a, a shared world of the imagination that um, that carries them through really to the ends of their lives. They continue to collaborate on stained glass, on tapestries, on books, all the way through to the 1890s. It's a wonderful relationship there. Yes, definitely. These enduring friendships are just so fascinating. Uh, and then if we can bring uh, Jane into the story then nice and early on, it's very shortly after these uh, years in Oxford at university, certainly, that Jane comes into the story. What can you say about the moment Jane enters this pre-Raphaelite circle and what has it come to represent in the pre-Raphaelite story? So 
Jane Burden uh, was 17 when um, she was approached by uh, Rossetti, one of William Morris's close friends. Uh, Morris, Rossetti, Byrne-Jones and some other friends were back in Oxford uh, working on an art project at the Oxford Union. Um, And Rossetti effectively sort of follows her along the street. He's seen her, he's seen Jane in the theatre and he accosts her. Uh, and says, I want you to come and be my model. I want, I want someone to be my Guinevere. Yes, so f- we, we tended to see this very much from Rossetti's point of view as this wonderful moment of discovery, you know, this model that he paints and draws and obsesses over for the rest of his life. But I wanted to turn that around and see it very much from Jane's point of view. You know, she's 17, she's got her little sister with her. And what is she supposed to say to this man who is... A co- you know, trying to trying to chat her up in the street in the evening, um, and trying to you know persuade her that sh- you know she she should be an artist model. I mean, I have teenage daughters. If one of my girls came back and said there was this bloke from London who came down and said he wants me to turn up his studio tomorrow, I would be very suspicious, and I know that she would also be very suspicious. So Jane, really, to get them off her back, um, Burn Jones is there as well, but sort of hanging back to get her to get get home she eventually agrees that she will okay come to their rooms in uh, in the high street and and sit for them but she has no intention of doing that and that's because she as far as we know she would already be working she would already be uh, maybe working as a servant girl uh, a maid in one of the colleges or maybe as a laundress um or maybe just running errands, but she cannot lose her character. She cannot be seen as a fast woman. She cannot be someone who who brings her own family into disrepute. And becoming an artist model has all those connotations. So understandably, she was very sceptical in the early days. Um, and it was only when Byrne Jones approached her again, you know, tracked her down and said, no, we really think you're you're what we need. You re- because she's also, Jane is not conventionally beautiful. She's not a neat little Victorian um, pretty girl. She is very tall, uh, very slender. She is often quite stooped. It's almost as if she's trying to hide, you know, hide herself. She has this very striking hair, which is very dark, black, crispy is how people describe it, you know, crinkly. And her face again, is really bold features, strong features. Um, And so she wouldn't think of herself as being beautiful. She would have thought of herself as being quite gawky, quite um, uh, out, out of place, outlandish. She often is described as looking not quite English. And so to be picked up as a model is... um, is unexpected for her. Mm. Yes, that does make so much sense to situate her in that way. And I mean, so often she's parachuted into this story and, as you say, discovered in, in quotation marks, but it makes so much sense to bring in her point of view. It's, it was very refreshing to read about. Um, but it, it is it is a big moment in this pre-Raphaelite story, isn't it? Because, as you said, her looks are very different to other ideals of the day, I suppose. And And what else can you say about this pre-Raphaelite look, I suppose, that she came to embody so much? So both Rossetti and then also Ed- Edward Byrne-Jones are looking for models who can 
present the, the Middle Ages uh, to a new audience who can look like uh, saints or queens or princesses, um, but who have, you know, strength and stamina to be able to hold some of the poses. The first uh, picture she modelled for, she is standing with her arms outstretched against an apple tree as Queen Guinevere. Um, so these things are not easy. Um, and for the pre-Raphaelites, they, they wanted to understand um that kind of the 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 quirkiness the the awkwardness um almost the wildness of the middle ages you know when they're reading someone like john ruskin who also becomes a friend of theirs um but he sets out in uh, when he writes about the nature of gothic about about what mattered to the middle ages and again these are things that are out of place in you know the modern world of Victorian uh, Britain, they were they were things that were savage. They were things that were grotesque. They were things that were, um, yeah, th- there was an edge to this love of the Gothic. And I think Jane and also Elizabeth Siddle, who was uh, the other great model and, and a poet in her own right and painter, um, they brought this sort of disquiet because their, their figures were not conventional. And that's one of the reasons why they appealed to this group of young artists who wanted to to be radical. They wanted to push the boundaries. I see. So, so at this point, then, she's been discovered by Rossetti. She's been brought into this circle from humble beginnings, as you alluded to. What's known about her feelings entering the circle? Do, do we know much about how she felt? Um, it's quite difficult to piece together her her thoughts at this point in the early days. We are very, very lucky now that um, Jan Marsh and Frank Sharp have edited uh, Jane's letters, all of those that they could find in the archives um, in Britain and, in fact, across the world. Uh, Those were published a few years ago. Um, But there are still gaps. So, yes, we can read uh, later when she writes to her friend um, Crom Price about, uh, you know, where she walks in in Oxford, going down to look at the canal barges and and imagining travelling on a barge, but thinking that's beyond you know, that kind of escape is impossible for her. Uh, We know that she was very swift at at learning um, how to be a model, how to, you know, present herself. And we see that in early photographs of her, that she goes from being, as I said, quite gawky to being someone who actually poses, you know, know, turns and lifts her chin and, and, and shows off her hands and all these things that the artists were interested in. Very early on, she's already adapting. And it's, it seems, as far as we know, that she also started to adapt um, the way she spoke, the way she presented herself socially. So she is in a perfect position in a way. Once she's in the artist studio, she's sitting, she's being looked at, but she's also listening all the time to this group of young men who are talking about poetry and about um London and about their travels, you know, whether they're going to go to France, whether they're going to go to Italy. Um, she's picking up their the sound of their voices but also the, the the meaning and she she wants she loves reading she's always loved reading that's one of the few sort of snippets we get so she begins this process of 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 education which actually carries on all the way through her life you know 
she never stops stretching herself. She never stops trying to read poems in Italian to learn a new musical instrument, to learn um, how to uh, to get on with people from many different walks of life. You know, she's always um, feels that she's got this potential to grow. And I, that's one of the reasons I, I've loved getting to know Jane, because she's not this kind of passive, compact person just presented on the canvas. She is actually a living, breathing, three-dimensional woman and worth getting to know. Yes, absolutely. And I suppose, how much then do you think that her role as muse, model, and as we'll talk about in a short while, I imagine, wife, how much of that has contributed to how she's been perceived thus far in in, in history? I have a real problem with the word muse. I just don't think that any woman wants to be a muse. They want to be you know, maybe they want to be looked at, but they don't want just to be put on a pedestal. That's never what she wanted. You know, she was always engaged. Um, she was involved in, in in embroidery or she was involved in homemaking or she was involved in cooking or hospitality or travelling. You know, she was always, as I, you know, tried to get across this idea of her stretching herself. Um, but the way that m- we have come to know her is through the images made um, mostly by uh, by Gabriel Rossetti. And he kind of latched onto her, um, particularly after his own wife died in 1862. Jane then becomes the, the next obsession. And Rossetti, um, you know, he, he starts to exaggerate her looks when we compare, say, photographs of her and paintings by Rossetti. You know, they, they start to become, you know, everything becomes bolder, heavier, um, richer, when in fact, you know, she was not a queen. She was not a Venus. Um, she was not Beatrice, Dante's Beatrice. She was, you know, a wife and a mother and yes, a very accomplished model, artist model. Um, so I think there is this, has been always this disjunction between what she really was and and the way she was presented. There's this, I think the 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 way I get at it best is um, there's a very good painting of her in the V&A Museum and she's sitting in a tree and she's got a book in her lap and it's kind of falling off her lap and she's sort of staring into the distance in a rather distracted way. And this is called The Daydream by Rossetti and originally it was called The Reverie. So it's this idea that she's completely sort of uh, out of touch. She's not engaged. And on the other hand, we have a letter she wrote herself about sitting under an apple tree, reading a book um, in her own garden, overseeing what's going on when they're rebuilding parts of her house. This is in Hammersmith, um, you know, trying to learn how to read this poetry in, in Italian, uh, trying, you know, her, she says, you know, her head feel, feels like pudding, but she doesn't want to be thought of as idle. She doesn't want to be thought of as... Um, as uneducated. So, you know, we have her own way of thinking about herself as, you know, sitting in a tree with a book of poetry and then Rosetta's way of presenting. You know, I know which one I believe. I believe Jane. I don't believe Rosetti. It's a beautiful painting, but it's a fiction. Right. So moving back then from these um, exaggerations, there's these um, imprints of her in other minds. Um, Jane does marry William. We perhaps talk about that, that choice of his in a moment. But she becomes very ingrained and essential very quickly to his life and their life together, doesn't she? 
That's right. So when Rossetti goes back to London um, at the end of the Oxford project, Morris stays on. And that's when they he really gets to know Jane. Um, he re- He's reading Dickens to her. He's drawing her. He wants to paint a picture of her as uh, La Belle Isolde. So that's the Isolde from the Tristan and Isolde story. And allegedly he writes on the back of this painting, I cannot paint you, but I love you. And that is a uh, it's a pretty good way to to think of of William as this kind of this outburst of of emotion and not quite knowing where to put it, not quite knowing how to present. He's not a romantic man. He can't flirt. He can't charm. Um, but he he sees the potential in Jane, and I think that's the wonderful thing. Um, he has the ability to marry whoever he likes. He doesn't need to marry. Um, a woman who has money or who has class, he can he can choose. He's he's very fortunate in that respect, and he chooses Jane because yes, she is beautiful, but also I think he sees that she is willing to experiment with him. You know, to try some of these new ideas of how how we might live differently. You know, he plans to build a different sort of house for them. Um, he plans to to become an artist or a poet rather than, you know, a a more traditional profession. And so, yes, he proposes to Jane. I think initially a lot of people just expected this kind of flirtation or dalliance and then he'd drop her. Um, You know, that that did happen. But um, William wanted wanted to protect Jane from that kind of suggestion that she was throwaway. And, And so he does propose and she has no choice, does she? There is never going to be a better offer than this. We may quibble over whether she really loved him, whether she was, you know, following her heart or her head. But to my mind, Jane would always have to marry sensibly if she was going to get out of this really poverty-stricken upbringing. You know, she lived in a really grotty bit of of Oxford. Um, So, yes, she was always going to have to marry a man who could... who could help her fulfil her potential. And here is William Morris, um, who is, you know, Rossetti describes him as being like a millionaire. She won't have to worry again. She won't have to to be concerned about, uh, about what happens next because William will look after her. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It's, it's valid to do that just because they don't feel they are worth our attention. We can see what they were doing to make to make the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood work. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. And the in your book, In How We Might Live... What struck me is is the um, brilliant sense of place, this tremendous sense of the places they form together. What can you say about the, um, to me, it seems sort of halcyon days of their early, um, the, the, the home they forged together? So they get this chance to build a completely new house. Um, it's called Red House because it's made out of this deep red brick and they choose a plot of land for no very good reason, as far as I can see, um, in Kent, uh, near Upton in Kent. And they build it in an orchard. So already it's clothed with, you know, blossom and then apple trees. Um, and they, they put on the plans for the building, they, they, they work out how they want the garden to look. They make these beautiful, uh, enclosures, uh, of sweetbriar and, and roses all around the house. And they, and they know they want jasmine, and, uh, to grow up the, the house walls and they plant pear trees. Um, you know, so, so from the, from the outset, there's a sense of the, of the garden and the home being very much of a piece. And the designer for this is their dear friend, Philip Webb. Morris got to know Webb in Oxford in his architects, uh, when they were architect students together. And it's through Webb often that we, we hear Jane's most authentic voice because their letters, which carry on well into the 20th century, they both outlive William Morris uh, by many years. We hear that sort of, that almost that, that sense of, of, of comradeship, um, of, of wanting to work closely together, um, to build something where they can gather their friends where, you know, it's big enough to have have dinners in the evening where a dozen people can can be around the table and they've got wine cellars and you know, descriptions of William Morris coming up from the wine cellars with, you know, armfuls of bottles of wine and he's rosy with wine and, and they're, they're designing the interiors with stencils and uh, and and painted uh, furniture and and Jane and her friends are going to embroider beautiful wall hangings for the dining room and there's this real sense of energy and and novelty and collaboration um and you know people like uh, Rossetti and Elizabeth Siddle they come down at the end of the working week uh, Edward Byrne Jones and his new wife, they come down um, and they can sit in this wonderful space that's sort of the between space, you know, at the garden porch with a table there so they can look out at the roses and the sunflowers. Um, uh, but they're sort of, they're, they're able to get on with their stitching or their writing. Um, and I, th- I think that that time 
um, in the early 1860s, yes, it was it was very precious for everybody, and it kind of set the tone for everything that happened next. This is where they came up with the idea that they didn't just need to decorate Jane and William's home, they could decorate other people's homes. Why not produce stained glass for churches? Why not produce um, glasses and, and wall hangings and wallpaper that they could sell? You know, this is this is a really great commercial enterprise. And it all begins, you know, when Jane is is entertaining these these young people, these these friends. And so I guess the point here is that this domestic life was no less necessary or formative to the work of William Morris than, say, his work, his his travel or his um, life at Oxford. I think really this, the opportunity to have a big enough house so you can have people come and stay. They had spare bedrooms. They had um, these big trestle tables, which they would, you know, pile with food. Um, and all of that was organised by Jane. You know, she had a, a, a team of staff. She had four um, servants looking after the kitchen, looking after the pantry, looking after the scullery. Um, and that was very unusual for her as well. If you can imagine, as a young woman, she had been a servant. She'd been one of those kind of um, semi-invisible women who would go up the back stairs. And now she was in charge of, you know, of this wonderful space. Um, so, yes, the home... Well, I mean, one of the great things that Morris says is, you know, the the true secret of happiness lies in taking a genuine interest in all the details of daily life. You know, if we can't enjoy the food on our table, if we can't enjoy, you know, the books on our shelves or the garden outside our window, then we're not going to, you know, however hard we try, we're not going to enjoy the more complicated things, you know. And he loved the idea that that work and play, home and and work, were not pulling against each other. You know, he, he writes about, you know, my freedom of work is a dear delight to me. To be able to to work from home, to be able to work with friends, you know, it's it is the ideal, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes, here, here. Um, and it's around this time, I suppose, that um, as well as being influential in this world of, of design, of burgeoning ideas of the arts and crafts movement, um, Jane is also cultivating her own identity in this this world that she's, you know, relatively recently entered. What can you say about this sense of personal style, I suppose, if we can call it that? I think it's very interesting that Jane works out that once they start to show the contents of their home, effectively their house becomes a, sh- a showroom, um, that she is also on display. And so you get someone like Henry James, the novelist, coming over from America and he wants to meet William Morris. He's heard about Morris as a poet and also as a designer. But he also wants to see Jane. She becomes, I mean, later on in life, she becomes almost a tourist attraction. People you know, want to t- literally tick her off the list of things they have seen. Um, and Henry James comes to visit uh uh, Jane and William in their house when they move back up to London. Um, and he he sort of dissects her, what it is she's wearing, how she's performing as uh, almost as a work of art in her own right. And we we can see there that she she has chosen to, yes, to put herself on display in the paintings, but also in her encounter with someone like Henry James. And she is wearing really 
quite unusual clothes. So she's not wearing things that are fancy dress. I mean, for some paintings, she does get dressed up in things that are clearly, you know, um, archaic or or not suitable for, for daily wear. But she's somewhere in between. She's wearing clothes that are have a sort of a, a renaissance flow about them, a, a sense of colour and and movement that is is not the kind of neat and tidy, buttoned up um, uh, silhouette of a of a, a middle class woman. She doesn't wear lots of lace or lots of jewellery. She doesn't wear. She apparently, according to Henry James, was not wearing corsets or crinolines. Now, it's slightly unnerving that he he's trying to he's thinking about her underwear i find that very odd um but clearly you know her natural figure um was more on display than would he was expecting and that's okay because this is her home this is her own space she is you know entertaining a young man of an evening with her husband she she can sort of play with this idea of 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 how how she might look differently, um, and moving between the kind of the, the the conventional world and the artistic world, she is one of the the first women, I think, to adopt what is then becomes called artistic dress, where you take off your corset and you have a more natural form, where you lose your crinolines and you allow the the fabric to flow. She's right there at the forefront of it, and. You know, she she presents herself with these wonderful silken gowns, which she makes herself and embroiders herself. And there are lovely descriptions of her girls. She has two daughters and how they love to stroke these dresses and how they love the sound of these dresses and the comfort they got from from their mother's physical presence in, in these in these wonderful f- dresses. Yeah. Yes, such such an evocative image there. It's lovely. Uh, can we talk a little more about her skill with needlecraft then? Because there are such such striking um, stories in your book about her embellishing dresses as uh, Gabriel Rossetti's painting her, for example. What can you say about her skill? So she clearly came into the marriage with some uh, embroidery skills, with some plain sewing skills, and she and Morris together start to experiment. Um, he starts to unpick old pieces of, of, of embroidery and, and stitching, and she learns how to remake them. And they start, they have to go out and find um, embroidery silks, find gilt thread, all these things that they want for their wall hangings, uh, initially at Red House. And then later when they go into production, she is there leading the, um, the, the workshop of, of women who are, who are producing embroideries for churches and for homes. But it also happens in her own life. She, you know, when she sits for Gabriel Rossetti for a portrait that's called, actually called the Blue Silk Dress, there's a lot of correspondence with them about, you know, how the, the sleeves should feel, uh, how she, you know, and he, he, he turns to her, you know, and asks her how they, they should make the, the sleeves look more sort of puffy and, 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 and gorgeous. And they, they discuss, um, the other gilded, thread that would embroider around around her throat um these little french knots that she puts in there but her her skills were astonishing when you think about the scale she's working on as an embroiderer uh, when you think about the different stitches she's using um and the focus you know and she also she she's sort of like the performance of it you know her her 
daughter's friends remember her you know sitting on the sofa or reclining on the sofa when she was in poor health and stitching these big um they were hangings for doors or sometimes for for bed coverings and then kind of flinging it out you know this massive embroidery flinging it out from her lap and sort of admiring how far she got and seeing how much further she needed to, you know to work on it but that sense that you know of enjoyment but also yes this is this is something i've achieved and and everybody can kind of see the the excitement of of it and later on, she comes, as you say, to manage a female workforce and to oversee. Why Why do you think, what other factors do you think in, in the, this aspect of her life has been so underplayed? It's been difficult to reconstruct what happened in the early um, embroidery workshop at, in Morris's uh, firm, partly because it seems the women initially were not paid you know we can't actually see who was um who was on the books uh so someone like edward burn jones was getting uh paid for his uh his design for stained glass or even his designs for embroidery but we don't see the women who are making those embroideries um show up so it can be difficult and then as her daughter may grew up uh in fact she passed a lot of that responsibility on to May, uh, who becomes uh, the head of the embroidery studio. Um, and we, we know an awful lot more about, about Morris and Company's um, textile production once May is in, in charge. Because I think up until that point, there is this sort of, it's semi-professionalised. It's sort of, it's still working within the home, isn't it? You know, women were taking, effectively taking work on, on as piecework, which is the way that women's art has often been done you know in between all the other chores in between you know looking after your guests in between looking after your children um or arranging you know your husband's work dinners or whatever it is uh, then she was doing this other this other very highly skilled work for for the firm um so there are i think this is one of the exciting things about you know, you assume that everything is out there already about William Morris. Of course, everybody knows. But there are gaps. There are these these places that I would like to dig a little bit deeper. So this is still, you know. And to return then to to both William and Jane, it's it's a joint biography. They obviously have some more challenging times in their marriage. I wonder if we can talk about um, what 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 happens there. So there are two big challenges in their marriage. The first is that their older daughter, Jenny, uh, develops epilepsy uh, when she's a teenager. And so from that moment on, someone always has to be with Jenny. They they had such high hopes for her. They, they'd hoped that she would be one of the, the first... Uh, female undergraduates at, at Cambridge. You know that's where she was. She was destined to be. She's a, a, a great scholar. Um, but after the uh, the first episodes of uh, her seizures, that was just out of the question. So from then on, they have to constantly sort of juggle who is at home, who is away. Uh, you know, for work, and and a, a lot of that falls inevitably on Jane's shoulders because William is is often, you know, he's he's working out how to, to dye textiles, he's working out how to weave tapestries, he's working out how to get the, the next edition of his poems published. And so Jane is the one who is trying to find a new nurse, a new uh, a new nursing home maybe, uh, or, or just taking Jenny away to the seaside. That's, it's, it's hard to see this girl deteriorate. Um, and then 
of course there is the 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 sort of romantic difficulties the infidelity um so jane and rossetti um become closer and closer in the late 1860s uh, morris is really absorbed in his work and and to a certain extent he 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 doesn't fight it. I find this very interesting. There's a, a sense he knows he cannot be everything to Jane. He knows that that Rossetti offers her a, a charm and a romance that is just not he's not capable of himself. So um, this intimacy grows until the early 1870s, when um, Morris is very low about it. He doesn't find it easy. Um, but there's a, they try to find a way through rather than a, a sort of catastrophe. And I think this is really interesting how they work as a couple. There isn't a breakdown. There isn't a, a, an ending that in fact there is a, a reworking of their relationship, their, their marriage. So in 1871, uh, William Morris and Gabriel Rossetti take joint tenancy of a house in Oxfordshire. They, they own, uh, they're able to, to, to rent. Kelmscott Manor, which is a, six, uh, a house built around 1600 um, in the heart of the Cotswolds, very, very remote, very quiet. And Morris, William Morris, allows Jane to spend the summer there with with Gabriel um, and his daughters as well, um, ostensibly because because Jane is modelling for Gabriel Rossetti. You know that is that is the the cover for it, the cover story, and at that point, William Morris himself goes away to Iceland. He he removes himself and goes and does something completely different, something actually transformative for his own life, something that he needed to do. Um, and Jane and Rossetti are able to spend that summer together. And in fact, over the, the next five years or so, they spend a lot of time in each other's company. Um, but gradually, Rossetti becomes seriously unwell, serious mental health problems, and Jane sort of becomes uh, a, a rather more distant, still a, a great friend, a cons- you know, a consoler, but but no longer his lover. Um, and, uh, you know, again, she and William kind of navigate that, and William is there when she comes back, as it were. Um, and he himself has, has come to his own conclusion about what is what matters, and he discovers that in Iceland, that actually, it you know you what you need is is only the bare essentials, and you need to be you know that sense of honesty and integrity, and you don't need all the stuff of a household. In fact, all you know all he needs is a tent and a campfire, and I I find that so refreshing about him that we assume because of because of Morris and Company that it, it's all about you know big wallpaper and you know, lots of upholstery, that that's what Morris stands for. He really doesn't. In his own space, in his own study, there was no carpet. There was just a trestle table and loads of books. And he was happiest, I think genuinely happiest, in a tent in Iceland. It's it's a very pragmatic partnership. And there was a wonderful um, quote that I'm probably going to butcher of him thinking that most manor houses in England would be better if everything was taken out and burned and started again. Oh, absolutely. You know, he really thinks we, we accumulate too much unnecessary stuff. And the things we should have around us, we should cherish and should be well made. And then 
And then the working people who make them are not making shoddy. They're not making unnecessary throwaway stuff. That's what it comes down to. It's, it's the relationship between the consumer and the worker that actually we should be thoughtful about what we are acquiring because somebody out there is, is having to, is having to spend their lives making something ugly or something unnecessary. And they could be spending their lives making something worthwhile and then having leisure to to sort of grow themselves. So can we go a little more into to William, the, the man then? I think William Morris is the most generous person I have ever re- in, researched, ever investigated, ever, ever encountered really in the 19th century. Um, he has so much uh, sense of, of what really matters. Um, he is very uh he he's a, sort of a bear of a man he is he 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 fidgets and he ruins you know he's often ruining chairs by sort of wobbling them to bits and he his his dining table they have to put a band of iron around the edge of his dining table because otherwise he will whittle away at the you know with his knife he's very he's very um impatient but at the same time as this sort of impossible physicality he is so careful about you know he can make calligraphy he can make these beautiful illuminated manuscripts he can he can see how 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 weaving or embroidery should be done he has such care of of the small things and i think he he has amazing energy and that's quite difficult to live with i mean i'm not sure i would need I find it easy to, to to have a husband who who gets up at sort of five o'clock in the morning to go and weave some tapestries and then go stomping off to to go fishing. You know, there's a sense of urgency about Morris, which is quite exhausting at times. And I think his friends could could see that as well. And his appetite, you know, he's he's always wanting more and more and more. You know, doing the next thing, doing the next thing. Well, there is plenty more I'm pleased to say about him in How We Might Live. Um, but if I can return to Jane, um, there's a quote in your book. Jane tells um, Georgie Ben jones her friend, why should there be any special record of me when I have never done any special work? And I wonder, having appraised her life in this way, what you make of this quote? I think Jane was used to being overlooked often, you know, seen in her own day as as simply a, a face on a canvas rather than a woman who had thoughts of her own. I think very often she didn't want to be pressed, in fact, about her background, about her thoughts, because her, her background was not very comfortable. And I think for a lot of her life, she was worried about being found out, about saying the wrong thing or, you know, a, a slip of the tongue somehow. And so she often is, is presented as rather reticent, there are wonderful letters with with friends that she she trusts and cares for. There are wonderful sort of laughing letters, uh, uh, full of humour and you know descriptions of how she she gets on with children and the household and and her own work. I think for many women, they don't. F- feel that that is their role to be recorded. I mean, you think of Georgie Byrne-Jones, this very good friend of hers, who completely effaces herself in uh, recording her own husband's life in two volumes, the memorials of of Edward Byrne-Jones. And it's because of Georgie we know so much of what was going on in that circle. And Georgie is a great writer, and she wanted to be a book illustrator. 
But she was told by John Ruskin, you know, keep your house tidy and your baby happy. And then if there's time, then do a little bit of illustrating, you know, when you can. Um, that was the, the world they were brought up in. So we can, I think, reevaluate these women's lives. It's, it's valid to do that just because they don't feel they are worth our attention. We can see what they were doing to make to make the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood work, to make the arts and crafts movement work, to make Morris the, you know, the great poet and artist that, that we've always recognised he is, it happened because Jane was there doing a lot of the legwork and, and a lot of the, of the artwork as well. So before we leave Jane then, can we talk a little more about the sources that you've been looking at to piece together such an account? We've been very lucky um, to read her letters, but also there are some wonderful, really personal works of art that she makes. These little manuscript books where she writes down favourite quotations uh, and and some of these she gives to friends. They're almost like sort of little Christmas gifts, um, but they've been gathered into, uh, uh, into little bindings in the uh, British Library and we can see them together now alongside extraordinary illustrations that she does. Um, So we know what William Morris's calligraphy looks like and we know what May, her daughter's uh, works of art, look like. Jane's drawings, illustrations, illuminations in these books are unlike anything else in her circle. Um, They are these little sort of black and white geometric um, forms often interlinked rings and swirls, almost like sort of comets falling from the sky with, with texts whirling around in them. And I think they they actually reflect her interest in, in stitching because often sort of the backgrounds are filled with these tiny, tiny lines of, um, of pen and ink, which are almost like individual stitches. And sometimes on the borders, you've almost got a, a, a sort of a loose thread that she picks up and, and draws onto onto the onto the border of, of her pages so these things because they they show us what she was reading the the text that she valued um her, her playfulness with with text and image they really bring us so close to to her to the things that um she wanted to record and she wanted to uh, to share with with friends as these little gifts um and I was very, very fortunate to be able to sort of handle them and get close to them and 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 try to bring them to to a wider audience because they really haven't been looked at fully before. Um, I I would love them to be better known. That was Suzanne Fagens Cooper. How We Might Live at Home with William and Jane Morris is published by Quercus and is out now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. Mm-hmm.